Today, roughly 200 million combustion engines are manufactured every single year, which is roughly 50% higher than the global birth rate. So you have to imagine for every baby that was born, we're producing 1.5 engines somewhere in the world. Out of these 200 million engines, 50 million are off-road engines. You will find these engines in all kinds of tools like power cutters, compressors, all kinds of gardening tools. All of these tools have built-in engines. Our business is providing mobile energy where you don't have a grid available. And how is that done today? Let's take one of our biggest customer groups today, which are welders. Welders are usually towing a big generator behind their car because they need a very reliable, high power source of electricity. And we were asking ourselves, why is no one using a battery? Do they all love their generators? One small generator will emit about 100 times the spot forming emissions, such as carbon monoxide, nitric oxides, all the things that cause bad air quality compared to a modern car. And this is despite the small engine having only three, four kilowatt of power and the car having up to 100 times that power. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. I am your host, Florian, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this brand new podcast where we meet with the founders building the technologies to get us to net zero. We live in the defining decade for climate. We have until 2030 to halve our emissions. In Scaling Climate Tech, we will understand how these incredible climate technologies work and if and how they can replace fossil solutions, not over the next century, but in the next 10 years. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. In this new episode of Scaling Climate Tech, we welcome Sebastian Berning, co-founder and co-CEO of Instagrid. Instagrid is a German startup operating across Europe and the US, whose mission is to replace conventional gas and diesel generators with clean, portable batteries. These gas and diesel generators are necessary for many off-grid applications where power is needed, but without easy access to the grid. You can think of food carts, construction sites, festivals, and countless other applications. Yet, these generators produce an incredible amount of emissions for the little power they actually provide, and they raise serious health concern due to the particulate matter they release. In this episode, we'll discover the incredible journey of Sebastian, from the launch of Instagrid back in 2018 and the prototyping of his early batteries, to scaling the manufacturing sites with the $40 million funding round they have just completed, and to the expansion in the US to replace all fossil generators with clean battery power. Let's get started. Hello, Sebastian. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Today, Sebastian will talk about a, a climate problem, which, to be honest, I had not given much thought to before this discussion, because when we look at the breakdown of emissions, we rarely see the challenge coming up of combustion generator, which will be our topic today. So I'd love to talk together about these fossil fuel generators and understand what are their climate and health implications. I would like to better understand as well where and how these generators are being used today and how can they be substituted by technologies like the Instagrid one and what is the scale of that, that problem. And finally, I would like to understand how you can address this large 
markets across different applications and truly scale the battery production and the sale to replace as fast as possible these fossil fuel generators. But before anything else and delving into all of these topics, could I ask you to introduce yourself, Sebastian? Yes, oh sure. My name is Sebastian Berning. I'm one of the two founders of Instagram. I was born and raised in Germany. That's where also Instagram is located today. And actually, I was also raised in, in the US for, for a substantial time. I, I grew up in the South, uh, in Louisiana, because my, my dad happened to, to be an expat there. Yeah, it was a great experience for me as a little elementary school boy. And I then went on to study physics at some point. So I'm a technologist by heart, and I always loved taking things apart. So I'm really this, this tech-driven guy. And, uh, you know, first trying to find out how things work and then trying to make it better, trying to make my own. So I studied physics and computer science in Germany in a, in a smaller technical university, Darmstadt, and also in, in Switzerland before ultimately having to figure out what I wanted to do in life. You know? So I, I, I joined a consulting company actually for quite some time to, to become an SAP consultant. So, you know, consulting ERP systems, IT systems. And as much as I love programming, I quickly found out this was not my world because I wanted to really create new pieces of tech that would actually serve a, a higher purpose in, in a sense. You know, I'm not too far-fetched, but really just I, I wanted to have this feeling of immediately having a positive impact with what I was doing. And, you know, I never know where I actually want to go, but I'm deeply convinced that you kind of have to keep iterating. You know, you have to try new things because you, you never know what you really want to know. And quite frankly, there's also always a bit of luck uh, around if you have the right timing, if you meet the right people. So I keep iterating, I start new things. And one of these things was then I had a chance to join a lab in uh, neuroscience, like a truly international group with people from all over the world. So I spent the next four years doing my PhD in, in neuroscience in a microscopy related field. And um, this was probably on my journey, also a really important part where I found this international atmosphere. I found this top-notch technology questions we were working on in a very interdisciplinary way. So working with biologists, with medical doctors, professionals, and, um, you know, solving some of the mysteries of, of neuroscience. So fast forward four years later, I was in a pretty good position to start a scientific career, but I was asking myself whether I wanted to keep on building technology or creating things for and writing papers about them. And as much as I enjoyed being in science, I also thought, for me, real technology was always about getting things into people's hands. And there I stood, 30 years old, and I was thinking, you know, I would love to do that, but I don't really know how to do that. You know, I'm a physicist, I'm a theoretical person there. So I looked around and I thought, where can I learn this? So I went on to join a big German corporation. So one of the you know biggest German corporations uh, in the electrotechnical sector. And uh, because they had the offering to kind of fast-track me on becoming a, an R&D manager, which I found fascinating at the time. So about a year later, I arrived in Silicon Valley in Mountain View, and that's where I, where I stayed. It was just six months, but we had a research facility right next to, to Stanford campus. And I actually went over a couple of times to also join some of the lectures, and I started working on, on battery technology over there. So it was kind of really the first time I worked on batteries. And we had this opportunity starting something new. So we were working on stationary batteries for commercial industrial applications. And remember, this was about 10 years ago. So it was really the beginning of, you know, finding out what could be use cases, 
how to get funding for it, how to do the right business models. And I really enjoyed that, that part. But there were also, you know, there were other people around, like, which were less corporate. And for example, there was a young company that was uh, STEM Energy at the time. And they were starting, you know, it was also just a few people and they were building their whole tech stack themselves. They were building all the hardware, all the software, doing everything themselves. And we were a corporate group of people with great funding, great skills, but we didn't move nearly as fast. It felt like we were very theoretical. So this, this was a great inspiration for me to say like, well, you can take things in your own hands. You can probably move faster, scale faster. If you have a good idea, if you really know what you want to do, maybe that's, you know, that's what's the first time I was thinking about maybe to do that outside of, of a corporation. So that was your first introduction to entrepreneurship or really thinking that entrepreneurship could be something from you. Because before that, that was mostly a, a scientific and academic training and background you had mostly, right? Yes, but I think I was always an entrepreneur. I think I started building my first websites for dentists when I was 12, probably a little bit younger. I uh, started a little internet business making more websites for people. That was just barely after the invention of the internet. Everyone wanted to have a website. I later, I built a, a number of small businesses actually. I was always looking for an you know, opportunity to, to have some small business in our neighborhood. and. Later, I also, I was always working. I was always trying to learn something. So for me, entrepreneurship was always about learning things because I think if you're on your own, you tend to learn things a lot faster. And I'm constantly looking for this steep learning curve. And I think entrepreneurship is part of that. So you had this, this DNA of looking into a new product and starting new thing. You were, you were that kid on the block selling lemonade and looking for a new, a new business idea. And so when you came to Silicon Valley, you had, you know, this intersection of your academic and expertise that you were building in, in batteries and the vision that, you know, some groups were, were launching products around that. Is that when the, the idea for Instagram started essentially? Actually, that took quite a few more years. It was just probably the stage where the idea of doing something in that field someday and, and finding this battery feel exciting. I think that that was when that idea came into my head. I actually went on. So when I returned to Germany, I, you know, I continued working for that corporation. I had the opportunity to actually work for the biggest power tools corporation at the time. And if you ask now what power tools have to do with this whole battery topic, well, a lot actually, because at that time, you know, it was before EVs took off. It was before we had a lot of stationary storage. The biggest customer in the world for cylindrical battery cells was this power tool corporation because people were buying drill drivers with battery packs and angle grinders, like all these tools. and I was in charge of developing all the electronics for a 1.5 billion business at the time, which was really exciting. It was for professional customers. So really, you know, German quality for putting that in the hand of professional customers. And, um, I got connections. I learned about battery management. I learned about power electronics. I was leading a team and, um, we were seeing, you know, we got close connections to the battery industry. So the, the cell makers, how electronics is produced, how to do quality management. So it was really a bit of a, an MBA in electronics and battery development. And I stayed there for, for another two years before ultimately moving on to, to start my own venture. That's the perfect transition to maybe introduce in more detail what Instagram is doing. And I understand that it's really the combination of that experience at Bosch on batteries and on power tools. So could you give us a bit of a view of what Instagram does today? And also maybe a sense of the scale of operation today, maybe some metrics whether it's, you know, the number of customers or the number of batteries you've, you've deployed. Yeah. So let me start with 
how did we get there or how did I get there from that point? When working with our construction customers, what me and my co-founder, who was, you know, a colleague from the time, what we experienced and what we observed was that there were a lot of use cases where people had their own tools. So they, people, there are billions and billions of devices and appliances out there with plugs. You know, so things that are meant to be plugged in into mains power supply. And we always thought that instead of convincing everyone to repurchase every single one of their appliances, you know, that they already have in a corded manner and replacing that with a battery power tool, we said, why not just give them an opportunity to continue using their tools with, you know, some kind of mobile power supply. And we said, the idea doesn't sound that terribly complicated. And there were like market leaders for, for the camping space out there where you could, you know, plug in your hairdryer when we were camping. But we quickly found out that there was nothing on the market that would be good enough for professional applications. So being robust enough, being waterproof, having the right peak power levels, what you could still carry around. And that was the moment when the idea got born to say like, okay, let's, let's make portable power for professionals, which is, you know, still our tagline. So Instagrid is making the world's best and most advanced portable batteries for professional applications that deliver 230 volt in Germany, in the US, 120 volt AC mains power supply. And our core promise is that whatever has a plug, whatever you already own, you can run it on an Instagrid battery. How do we do that? So we figured, you know, you need to invent this device or build something more capable. But what we underestimated is how difficult it is to come up with something new. And what the field at the time was doing, and like about the 30 companies building devices in this field, everyone is basically plugging together like a block of batteries with a power converter. And then they would put a box around it and all of these things you could buy, they would all look the same and they would have all the same limitations. So we figured out pretty quickly in order to come up with something better, we would have to reinvent the whole stack. Now we would have to start doing things differently on every single level of that device. And what we actually did was then to come up with a new way to do the power conversion now. So we make the most compact devices on the market and the most powerful. And the reason we can do that is because we reinvented the way of how power is, you know, how you charge that battery and how you discharge it again. So converting the grid power into something the battery can store converting it back to something that your tool can use. Okay. And you just mentioned camping batteries and again, being naive and out of the market here. I imagine that stationary batteries existed in 2018, but what you're saying is that they weren't exactly meeting the needs of the professionals who were trying to address. So they couldn't just go off, you know, to a retail store or a professional store and buy those batteries, or they wouldn't exactly meet their needs. Is that is that the situation back when you started? There was basically nothing on the market that people would have considered appropriate for using on a construction site in a professional setting. So to give you an example, I need something that can be dropped or that can take certain amounts of dust or that I can leave in the rain outside. I need something especially to handle peak power. What does that mean? So there, if you look at the little label on your tool, it's going to give you a watt rating. You know, it could be 1,500 watts. What this label is not saying is that in order to get the motor turning and to start that tool, you're going to need a peak power there. And most of these devices, these batteries are not capable of providing that level of peak power, meaning you cannot use the tool in the end. And 
because this is not transparent to the end user and you know people are usually not very concerned with that you know they plug something in it should work what the camping solutions usually do is they have a little label on them saying you can plug in this device you can plug in an electric toothbrush you can plug in your smartphone for recharging uh, you cannot plug in an electric drill they will not tell you why or you know give you any reasoning about it they will not and we always had the feeling that the customer shouldn't be or the user shouldn't care about that you know it has a plug to give you the the no worry package you should just plug it in and it should work and you should be able to rely on that every single time and that sounds very easy but it was a lot harder to achieve than we initially thought because there is no real spec of what that means and especially not for every single country in the world did you understand that when you start instagrid or is that you know those the specification the dust resistance the water resistance the peak power is that something you understood as you did customer discovery and started the instagrid journey by talking to actual customers we understood the requirement coming from the sector so we really knew that you know just by looking at things that this was probably not right and of course we were wondering why no one was actually using this so let's take one of our biggest customer groups today which are welders welders are usually towing a big generator behind their car because they need you know a very reliable high power source of electricity and we were asking of course we were asking ourselves why is no one using a battery do they all love their generators so what's going on there you know someone must have tried these little capping power supplies and if you start talking to people you realize pretty quickly that there is it's not a solution and they they will explain you but they don't necessarily understand why now so getting into the use case like you know really opening the devices looking at everything and and trying to understand what the problem is was one of the first things we did but to be very honest we also went into that endeavor with a certain amount of naivety probably you have to you know have to admit that so we knew that things wouldn't be easy but we didn't know how hard it would be to you know fulfill these requirements in the end and we were just assuming we're going to find a way which we ultimately did yeah a good dozen nft is always good uh, for, for entrepreneur to start with right otherwise it's too scary and too challenging you've talked earlier of those generators you've talked of of welders you've talked of construction professionals i'm trying to picture you know the depth of these markets and i'm also thinking you know there's golden gate park in san francisco i always get a coffee in a, in a mobile coffee shop and they have this huge generator making a huge amount of, of noise in the middle of the park so i can see this application as well can you give me a sense of the depth of the applications for instagram across those different markets yeah so let me start from another perspective you know to put this into context our business is in reality mobile energy so providing mobile energy uh, mobile meaning where you don't have a stationary supply in any sense where you don't have uh, a grid available and how is that done today so how is mechanical or electrical energy delivered off-site off-grid today if you look into that topic and it's you, you stated in the beginning that you don't see that in the statistics you know it, because it's you know so spread out today roughly 200 million combustion engines are manufactured every single year which is you know when i heard that number for the first time i was like this can't be true you know but it does make sense and we we validated that number there is no no official figure but if you break that down it does make a lot of sense so 200 million combustion engines every single year which is roughly 50 percent higher than the global birth rate so 
you have to imagine for every baby that was born, we're producing 1.5 engines somewhere in the world. Out of these 200 million engines, we are already tackling about 120 million per year, which are in the road transport sector. So 120 million out of these engines go into trucks, into cars, so any type of road transport. And as we all know, there are a large number, huge number of companies that are dealing with the electrification of these mobile energy sources. Let's call a car. It's, it's also a mobile source of energy that is being used to propel a car. But then there is another group, about 50 million per year. So 50 million engines is about one quarter of these engines that are being built. And these 50 million are so-called small off-road engines and more specifically spark ignition engines. So you will find these engines not just in generators, but you will find them in all kinds of tools like, like power cutters, like a lot of the tools you will find uh, for people which are doing pavements, for example, um, compressors, um, all kinds of gardening tools. Like all of these tools have built-in engines. And what we are addressing is really this whole market of small engines, because whenever you have a reliable source of electricity, there is usually also a way to replace the device. For example, if you have a jackhammer and jackhammers are, are really bad in terms of energy efficiency, there is an electrical equivalent to that jackhammer, you know, where you don't need compressed air, but which you can drive directly with electricity and which is about 50 times more efficient than the air driven one. So providing electricity on site is a key enabler to replace a lot of these engines. And we are basically, at a first glance, replacing electrical generators, which usually run on, on gas or on, on diesel. And the way we do that is by not actually creating the electricity on site or generating it on site, but giving our users the possibility to transport that electricity on site. No? So it's really more of a distribution. So you might have PV on your rooftop, you recharge the battery, and then you can take that clean energy that you generated and you can put it into, in use at the site where you need it. And this gives you the opportunity. So we always think about it as last mile electricity, you no, know, really extending beyond the edge of the grid and making that clean electricity available everywhere where it's needed. So the whole scope is 50 million engines. The whole population is about 1 billion engines because we, we're talking about a 20 year lifetime. So 1 billion engines worldwide waiting to be replaced by more sustainable solutions. And we think that we have the right solutions to tackle a large part of that population. And what you need to replace them is that you need to provide sufficient runtime and you need to provide a certain convenience. I'd love to understand better this 50 million you talked about. What I'm trying to understand is that 50 million, because either it is already an electric device that is powered by a diesel or gasoline generator, or it is actually a device that is directly powered by fuel. Right? Taking a jackhammer example you were, you were referring to, it can be an electric jackhammer that is powered by a fuel generator, or it can be directly using fuel in the device, if I understand correctly. And then the implications are different because the fuel generator that's what you can substitute directly with a Instagrid battery, for instance. Whereas the fuel-powered jackhammer, you will need to replace the device to then get access to electrical power like an Instagrid battery. Do you have a sense of how much the fleet replacement needs to happen to electrify those applications today? 
So our experience, and we're really just looking what our customers are doing, is that as soon as our customers have the option of replacing these tools, they do that pretty quickly because there is a lot lower TCO, like total cost of ownership, related to operating a lot less complex electrical tools. So to go back to that jackhammer, anything that has a lot less moving parts will need a lower maintenance cycles and will be cheaper to operate because you don't have to put in fluids like oil, like gas, and it's also safer to operate. It's more reliable because it has less moving parts. So what we realized is no one is in love with these tools. You know, they just happen to be there because they are the only solution and they are the only thing that people have known for a long time. So it's really about providing an alternative. And, you know, we don't rely so much on people being very environmentally conscious. It's um, just because it's the better solution for a lot of different reasons. And if you think about the time that Instagram was actually founded in 2018, I often remember people, but also our own employees who joined today, that this was before, you know, Fridays for Future, before Greta Thunberg, before all of that was really a big thing in the media that came about half a year later, about that summer. But when we founded the company, cleantech was basically dead. You know, people were advising us to not start a cleantech company. And we said, this has to happen at some point. This makes so much sense. You know, we don't care about this advice. We're just going to start doing this. And, you know, the selling point is not that it's more sustainable. The selling point is that it's going to cost less. It's going to be more convenient to operate, to transport. It's going to be safer because you don't have any, you know, hazardous fumes coming out of them. You'll have more convenience in handling because you don't have to refuel anything. You don't have the odors. And if you take that a step further for, you know, a craftsman providing a service, they can actually provide a better service to their customers by not bringing a generator or gas powered tool on site. To take it to the extreme, we were always thinking, you know, we tried, sometimes we like to beam ourselves into the future and we say, imagine this place, you're in the middle of, you know, German city center, you're having an ice cream somewhere and then someone is, you know, fixing the pavement and starting to power up these tools there. You know, you have this noise, the fumes, you're, you're going to be destroying the business of this place. At the same time, you have the electric cars hovering around where you think like there is kind of a disconnect. You know, this seems like it's out of its time. And when you see these pictures in front of you, say like, there is probably going to be a different solution in 10 years. And why shouldn't this be your solution? You know, why shouldn't we trigger this? You're describing my coffee shop experience, Sebastian. Every time I go, I'm wondering, like, you know, in the middle of this park of this nature and you have this huge generator just to power an espresso machine. So let's talk about that climate impact for these generators. We understand it's a massive problem in terms of scale, in terms of number of generators, as 50 million talked about. And it makes sense intuitively that, you know, replacing a fossil fuel combustion by electricity will be beneficial. You've made research on this, actually, and this is very serious stuff. There's a white paper funded by the EU, co-written by a university and Instagrid. So this is all very serious. And again, I was really shocked when I read the numbers. So could you share a bit these climate numbers to put in perspective the emissions of a conventional generator, so that the majority of the market today, versus replacement with a battery like the Instagrid one? Yeah, sure. First of all, what I always want to state is that we do have an impact in terms of climate-related uh, emissions, but we really believe that we have an even bigger impact in terms of air quality. So 
air quality is our first KPI. And also, you know, if you want to know about why air quality is so important, um, air quality is by the UN, it's, they're basically saying it's the number one reason for premature deaths in the world. You know, there are millions of people like between three and five, to my knowledge, every year that die from air pollution. And this is especially true in urban centers. So coming from Stuttgart, Stuttgart is, if you're a bit familiar with German media, it's actually not only the heart of the German automotive industry, but also one of the cities with the dirtiest air. Although the air is probably a lot better than, you know, in other big centers of the world. But when you look at the numbers, you figure out that these small engines, while everyone has been looking at cars for years and, and decades, these small engines come largely unregulated because their manufacturers will always say, well, we cannot put any uh, more stringent emission limits on them. You know, they're going to be too expensive. And we hear those arguments over and over again. But if you just go by the numbers and there's very little scientific research on that, actually, you find that one small generator will emit about 100 times the smog-forming emissions uh, or up to 100 times the smog-forming emissions, such as carbon monoxide, nitric oxides, like, you know, all the things that cause like very bad air quality, like particulate matter compared to a modern car. And this is despite the small engine having only, you know, three, four kilowatt of power and the car having like up to 100 times that power. So, you know, if you relate that to the power actually of the, of the engine, you end up with numbers that are kind of 10,000 times higher. And this was really shocking. You know, we said like, this cannot be true. So you mentioned or report. So we said there are no numbers around this. And until today, I'm not really sure why there are no numbers around this. But the problem is that if you buy a car, at least in Europe, there's going to be this little figures, even on any advertisement, you know, they're going to tell you, this is the amount of CO2 that's being emitted. This is the amount of nitric oxides being emitted on a standardized cycle. For the small engines, you don't have a standardized cycle. You don't have any measurements that have to be done. You have limits which are way off what you find for cars. So we did the measurements. We did a three-year project with partners, with industry partners, specifically with construction companies and with a couple of our other customers. And we did very detailed measurements also together with the Scientific Institute to do the actual measurements on the exhaust. And we found that this was actually true. So we have like between 10 and 15 times the emissions of nitric oxides per hour, but also up to 100 times the carbon monoxide emissions. And, you know, we go back to the communities, to the cities, and we tell them, listen, you know, to get the same effect for on your air quality, getting 100 cars off the street, you know, 100 cars, you have to get one single engine of these small engines off the street, you know, which is a lot easier. And we have a ready-made solution today. As you said, right, those particle matters, they have huge implication on health and I've grown in Paris where there's a lot of diesel cars. And so you can actually smell those particle matters from diesel that are generating a lot of them. So it's fantastic if you can reduce those of nitric oxide and, and carbon oxide. We're working very close with Paris because under the current mayor, which is Mr. Hidalgo, the city is undergoing an extreme, let's say, transformation towards a green city. Not only are they pushing the cars out of the city, but they're kind of making new parks everywhere. And for the Olympics, the Paris 2024, we are already partnering with the city to provide means of um, clean generation for all events. 
So we're, we want to be part of that story. And we, we think it's a, it's a great example of what, what can be done when you kind of put together what is technologically possible and you have like, you know, public incentives, but also the sheer political will to actually implement things. Yeah, no, definitely the 2024 Olympics will be a great, uh, a great showcase and opportunity. I was reading on, on that report that you produced that the CO2 produced per kilowatt hour of energy generated by a diesel generator is in the thousand grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. And I was trying to put that in perspective to conventional grid power or clean power from solar and wind, which is typically more in the, if you take, you know, gas or coal, it's in hundreds of grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. If you take solar or wind, it's more in the 10, 20 grams of, of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So the, the ratio here would be a 100x ratio in terms of, of CO2. Is that the the right order of magnitude? Because that sounds absolutely huge in terms of, of impact. Yeah, of course, you have to think about the actual use case, which can have a lot of influence. But yeah, I think we can reduce the carbon intensity of every kilowatt hour by a factor of 10 compared to, let's say, solar produced um, or renewable produced electricity. It can be even higher, you know, if you have really clean electricity. So, but even, I mean, what is also interesting is even if you just compare that to what is produced on the grid, so the average gray mix on the grid, we still have an improvement factor of around three to four. Okay, so it's very clear how, you know, switching to battery powered is really, you know, positive for the health of the workers, the city, climate, uh, there's the noise impact as well, uh, that it's important. How do you move from that observation that you had at Bosch and when you started the grid to actually testing this with customers? Because I imagine that designing and producing a battery is a long process. So what is the first year of Instagrid looks like? So they usually say that hardware is hard. I must say this is true and probably it's harder than you think even. To a certain extent, it was very good that we did this before. I think hardware for people coming directly out of, from school, it looks like a nightmare. So what we did in our first year was actually just the two of us, the two founders sitting in a small two-person office and working every day on the solution. So we were two technical founders that had all the knowledge we needed in our hands from coding to doing electric hardware to doing mechanics, battery management. And we thought of the simplest way to come up with a demonstrator. So really having this minimal viable product. And if you ever come to visit our, our headquarter here, we still have it in a glass box at, at our entrance because we want to tell people what a minimal prototype is, you know, and, and stay committed to keeping it minimal. It's a wooden box with, you know, a lot of wires hanging out and really, you know, with a couple of blue LEDs to make it look more techy. And we are basically putting that box together in a couple of months from an initial idea. And then we took it, we put it in our car and we were driving around Europe to find partners for industrialization. So why did we do that? It takes a long time to get a technological innovation all the way through, you know, industrialization, which means bulletproofing the design, getting everything industrial grade, doing all the sourcing, getting the manufacturing up and running. You know, you have to think about quality. You have to think about capital actually, because manufacturing is very capital intensive. And if you, if there's one thing you don't have as a seed stage startup, it's capital. No? We founded the company all bootstrapped. So we bootstrapped the first, all the first year. And what became very clear to us was that it would be already hard 
just to develop the technology to the maturity that we needed and getting it into production. You know, that would already require a big team. But then building up a distribution, getting all the, you know, manufacturing equipment in place, but also doing the sales part, doing marketing, you know, getting a, a completely new device into the hands of people, building that trust, that would have probably been too much for us to do. And we would have run out of money before we would get to that point. Especially because for, you know, VC and angels and VCs, there's only a certain level of patience combined with the capital they will give you. So our solution for that was that we said, let's find a partner, let's find a bigger company that wants to sell a white labeled or private label product to their customers. That's what we basically did the second half of the year, driving through Europe with the wooden box prototype in our car, demonstrating it everywhere between Southern Germany and Sweden, then ultimately being also, you know, lucky enough to find that partner that we could go on to work for the second year to uh, get an introduction. Okay. So the first prototype you have, this wooden box, this is the two founders, you know, putting together the right cell configuration to meet the requirements of specific machines and showing that potential customers. And what you're saying about the white label, the goal wasn't to produce yourself those batteries because you didn't have the capital and the, the team and infrastructure to do that yet, but to get a third party to use your design essentially and market that through their distribution channel and through their brand. Was that the model at the time? Yes, it's a bit different still. We always call it the Apple model because we do all the design. We do all the thinking about the manufacturing processes. We industrialize the design in the sense that we find a manufacturing partner. We work with that partner to get the manufacturing up and running. And what we deliver to our customers is a ready boxed unit, you know, with their design, with their color schemes, with their manual. So we basically take care of everything because that's only, that's the, so you have two possible interfaces. One is licensing things out, then you really just transfer IP. But it, the thing was so new that no one would have really trusted that this is actually going to work. And also we would have given out of our hands the opportunity to determine the speed, you no. Know? Because once you have the device ready, your customer's going to, you know, they want to qualify it and buy it. But if you just give them the IP, you never know how long it will take them to actually get out in the market with a product. And what you always observe with bigger corporations, and we worked at one before, is what we call the not invented here problem. So you will talk with product managers, with engineers, you will show them your great product. And they will ultimately say, well, it cannot be that great. Otherwise we would have thought of it, no? And so they have this pride. They say, you know, we're one of the best engineering organizations in the world. These two guys, it's impossible. They came up with something that we didn't think of. So you have to be a little bit political. You have to turn it into a project where everyone feels like this is our product, you know, and we're going to be the first ones to put this in the market with our brand. And then this partner will take a certain pride of being the first one and, and actually bringing, bringing it to market. And then there's a, some level of buy-in, but this took about a year. So I think my second piece of advice for hardware startups would be to not underestimate the time scales that you're dealing with. So in the end, until this project was really up and running, we had gone through a series A, you know, with this initial traction that our partner had shown and basically them telling our VCs that 
this, there is a market for this and we're going to prove it because we're going to put down a big order. You know, we're going to commit to buying X thousand units of this because we really believe in this idea. And this was really the spark that we needed to say, there is a great technology and a proven market fit because one of the biggest experts in this field says their customers need this and they, uh, they have proven it. So um, it sounds very easy looking backward, but um, this was really essential to our success that we could kind of first do all the technology and the hard stuff about bringing hardware to market and at the same time not worrying about that it was actually going to get sold. That's a thing we cared about in a later stage. And can you help me understand that at that stage, how do you design a battery? Because, you know, at the battery at a very basic level, there are electrodes, there's an electrolyte, and then you have different cells that you put together to make a battery meet the specs that you're trying to reach for your customers. But can you give me a sense of what does, what did Instagrid really modify in terms of key parameters versus what is just off the market, something you just purchased and put together? Because you're obviously not redoing the entire battery stack. Yes. So I think I usually start with some terminology. Whatever you usually buy from a battery manufacturer, you call them battery manufacturers. What they really are are cell manufacturers. So what you start off with are battery cells. This is the electrochemistry. This is all the know-how of doing the wet chemistry to put things together and, and manufacture these cells. This is what you typically look at in you know, at, uh, YouTube videos of gigafactories. You know, these are battery cells. But these battery cells are commodities. Instagram is not doing battery cells. Instead, we rely on standardized formats of battery cells, specifically cylindrical cells. You can buy them from certain manufacturers, you have to have a certain know-how to understand them, to know their limitations, how they can be handled, you know, how to avoid that you get into dangerous situations with them. So there is a certain know-how required, but you don't have to make these cells. Whenever you put together several cells into a bigger pack, you either call them a pack or actually a battery. So it becomes a battery, you know, by pure terminology, when you put together certain cells and you give them a higher function. What we are then doing is the know-how of assembling these battery cells into battery packs, putting all the electronics around it to safely manage them, which is called the battery management system. It's another ingredient. That's what we make ourselves. So all the sensing electronics, all the code that goes into there, all the safety considerations, then the mechanics around it to kind of protect these cells, keep them together, make sure they're, you know, they're in a water resistant package that can still, you know, outgas at certain conditions. And then the next level or the next ingredient to make a power station is actually the power conversion. So, you know, you have the sine waveform current coming out of your power wall socket, and you have to convert that into something, namely DC current that can go into your battery cells. This is what everyone is doing when you're plugging in your smartphone charger. They're, you know, you're converting that into five volt USB power and that goes into your smartphone to charge the cells. So there are two pieces here. We need the charger, the charger, you know, turning that power into something that you can charge into that battery pack. And on the way back, you need to turn whatever is in there because you're not consuming it in there, but you want to give it back to appliances you have to turn it back into that sinusoidal current or sinusoidal waveform. And this is our technology, the power conversion. And what is special about our technology is that we're doing it a lot different than to our knowledge anyone else uh, has ever done it. So what we're doing is, I usually describe it with comparing what Google did to servers. So 
when Google scaled up 25 years ago, they did not buy bigger mainframes as they scaled up their data centers. What they did, and we find it's very natural to do that in these cloud data centers today, but it was genius at the time that they said, we're not going to scale up, but scale out. Meaning we're going to take a lot of commodity computers with very low specs, very cheap, and we're going to write a software to make them all work together. We're going to just going to put them on shelves and then we're going to write real-time software to make this really a reliable, very redundant system. And that's the same that we are doing. So when we make a 3.6 kilowatt converter, that's, you know, the power you need to replace a wall socket in, in Germany, or depends a bit on your country, but that's was or, or benchmark. What you usually do is you take one big converter. And what we did, we chopped it down into 24 little microconverters. And these little microconverters, we put them together with a lot of software. So our battery today or, or product today, it looks very simple from the outside. You know, it has an on-off switch and a socket. But what it really is at the inside, it's really a big computer system. It has 28 microcontrollers that are running around 400,000 lines of software code. And that is really necessary to kind of really sync all these little converters working parallel to each other. And what you do is you, you, you transfer the complexity from building a big converter with, you know, there's a lot of knowledge needed on how to do the heat transfer and how to cool this yeah, single hot core to having something that kind of self cools because it's just divided down. It's, you know, it's like little light bulbs distributed in that package. It's very distributed and you just have to figure out how to make them run together, you know, running parallel on a microsecond scale. That is an effort you only have to do once. That's the beauty of a software solution that you invest once in mastering, you know, that software part, but then it gives you like a very good scale on the hardware side. And speaking about scale, that also means that instead of producing one unit, we're actually producing 24 modules that are all the same, that are all highly automated. So, which really means that if you look at our manufacturing line, instead of, you know, wiring things by hand, as you would typically see in a, in a Chinese manufacturing line for power stations, we have a very highly automated manufacturing line since the beginning. You know, if you, instead of, if you want to make 20,000 units, 20,000 of something is not really a high volume production if you could, you know, for a whole year. But if we have 24 modules, that basically means we have 480,000 of very standardized battery packs in there. And that's a case for a highly automated manufacturing line. And that's what we built from the first point. But that also meant getting back to what I just said about our brand partners, that actually means you need enough volume to actually run that manufacturing line at scale. So let's go back to this 2019 when you designed that very sophisticated 28 module battery, trying to understand that so there's this R&D part that the founders, uh, with your founder you've done, how long do you need to actually produce that first prototype. And, and if I understand correctly, you're not just producing the prototype, you're also producing the manufacturing assets that will be able to produce those, those 20,000 first batch. I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, when did you make your first sale and how long was it to actually get to scale in terms of manufacturing capabilities? So from the point we first started, like we, we incorporated uh, to the point that we sold or, or shipped or first batch of commercial units, not just test units, but really the first commercial batch, it was three and a half years. And that is considered very quick. So all of our partners basically said they couldn't have done it in a big corporation in three and a half years. Because of the novelty of what we were doing, it was not even really clear if it would work at all. 
and three and a half years is already fast. So you have to kind of, you know, from a financing perspective, you have to make sure that you have the right milestones in between to prove the right things in the beginning and to prove the right things later. So going back to the manufacturing equipment, we only really cared for the manufacturing equipment when we had orders in place to justify a large scale a production. Yeah. So it naturally comes in steps. And the first step was really, as I said, or wooden prototype box, where we said anything that is barely necessary. So to give you one example, our first sample couldn't charge. So because that we hadn't figured out the charging, but we said this, you know, if we can discharge and that's actually what people want to see, we're going to figure that other thing out later. So what we did for charging was basically taking these 24 batteries out of the system. It would sometimes take us a whole night and we would recharge them on a commercial charger somewhere, you know, like, like a iPad charger. And then we would assemble that thing back together, but then it would run a whole day and we could do several demonstrations with it. And no one would really doubt that we would be able to charge it at some point, although that was maybe harder than we admitted at first. So it's really about making thoughtful decisions or thoughtful choices about what you really need to do to show your core value proposition and what you can decide to to solve later at some point. And so from 2019 to 2021-ish, this is three and a half year you're talking about, how did you secure that demand? Was it through this, this first prototype and really doing demonstration with a lot of large accounts? And I'm sure the wooden box evolved throughout those three years. But is that how you secured demand? Because you didn't have a production-ready batch yet to demonstrate to customers. Yeah, so basically we sold first and built then. And I think this is a really good recipe to do things. So you always have to try to sell your product before you build it or at the earliest point possible. Now, something I would advise to anyone, I think this is also true for, you know, pure software plays, but for hardware, it's, it's even more important because until you're at the point that you can actually sell something that is certified, for example, uh, that it can be made in a, in a certain quality repeatedly, that takes such a long time. And there, we were also lucky. You now we didn't have to do too many iterations. Things worked out from the beginning, which could have gone a lot worse. But really finding that initial customer that would buy a couple of thousand units and sign a contract that whatever would happen, you know, if we just reached the spec, they would take these units. That was really important for us. And from that day on, of course, we went out and we said, if there is one customer, there could be more. So let's let's try to find other customers for it and, you know, worry about selling them on their own brand later, because we figured that would be something It would always be like an absurd opportunity but it was not immediately necessary to get the business off the ground. And you've talked earlier, you know, the health and climate benefits of those applications. We haven't talked too much about costs, which I'm sure is very important to those customers. And batteries are, are notoriously expensive, especially, you know, a few years back that the costs have been going down as we've seen with electric cars, but they still remain, you know, quite expensive. And that's why electric cars are still more expensive than, than combustion engine cars. You mentioned total cost of ownership earlier, meaning, you know, the, the entire spending you have over the life of the asset, And that's where for electric cars, you, you catch up essentially an internal combustion engine because you spend less electricity than with fuel. Help me understand how does that translate to combustion generators versus batteries? And specifically back in 2018, 2019, when, you know, price of batteries are still a bit higher, how big was the upfront gap for the customers? And how are you positioning this in terms of cost? One point I would like to start with is that 
batteries are still relatively expensive, but it's not, you remember we were just talking about battery cells and what I would then consider a battery or the whole power station. And five years ago when we started, it was already clear that batteries would be around $100 kilowatt hour. You know, that was this mythical limit where everyone predicted for a long time. Once we reach the $100 per kilowatt hour, everything is going to make sense business-wise. But we were already pretty close at that time. We were maybe at $150. And if you put that into relation to the $800 to $1,000 per kilowatt hour that battery systems, storage systems would usually cost and are still costing today. It became clear to us that the battery cells, so these little electrochemical units that you have in there, that they were actually not the cost driver because there was this gap coming from $150 to $1,000. And we were really thinking, where does that come from? You know, it cannot just be markup because then all battery manufacturers would be very wealthy, very well-running companies. So what we figured was that really this power conversion part, because it was never really optimized, because there was a lot less innovation in that space, it was actually a lot more expensive relatively than these battery cells. And this was especially true for high peak power applications because the cost driver on the battery side is the kilowatt hours, so the energy contents, whereas on the power conversion side, the power, so the kilowatts, is the cost driver. So if you want to have a very high peak power battery, you have to pay a lot for it, and also for the power converter. Or power converters scale a lot better in terms of you know, dollars per watt or cents per watt that you have to pay because of the way they are built. I mean, it makes sense if you compare that uh, with the data centers, they scale a lot better than mainframe systems. And cost in general is important to the end user, to the customer, but the business case is a lot more compelling than on, on the EV side. Uh, so for an EV, you need to replace a car with something that has maybe between 60 and 100 kilowatt hours of batteries. We only need two kilowatt hours of batteries to replace in this case, though. So the entry level or the hurdle that someone had, what someone has to invest is a lot lower. And coming from the application side, the cost per kilowatt hour. So if you do the maths, what does the kilowatt hour of electricity coming out of your generator cost you if you include all of the cost, really? It turns out that we are at 20 to 30% of the cost per kilowatt hour. So yes, you do have to do an upfront investment, but we know that there are going to be business models evolving to kind of you know spread that upfront investment out over years, rental models, leasing models. And so you mentioned 20, 30% cheaper in total cost of ownership with the Instagram product. And you know similarly to electric vehicles, you mentioned that rental models are a way to smooth the investment. Is that a challenge for your customers to, you know, shell out the, I don't know how much it costs, a few thousand dollars of investment for the new equipment and the batteries? Or have you also developed those rental models to really smooth out the, the initial investment? So first to say, we are at 20 to 30% of the cost. So it's not 20 to 30% saving, but 70 to 80% saving. Okay, that's much better. <laughs> much better. Our idea is as we are working with professional customers and as we are a startup in high interest rate times, you know, times have also changed in terms of price of capital. It is not really necessary that we develop these rental models. We are working with the biggest rental companies in the world, actually, also with rental companies that you will know in the US to bring these units to our customers. And that has a lot of different reasons. So one is that you don't want to pay this upfront capital. 
And actually also owning a battery is not really a good value proposition. Now, people usually don't want to own batteries because they want to use them. And there are these, these rental companies that are really good at supplying people with the units as they need them. And that's why we, we work with these customers. Also, from an impact perspective, we really want to make sure that our batteries are used every single day. So we don't want someone to buy a battery and use it two or three times a year, like in a camping scenario. We want this battery to be used every single day. It's made to be able to do that, to run over a thousand cycles. And from an impact perspective, we have to put a lot of CO2 into manufacturing this device, and we want it to be offsetting against something every single day. And this is what you can do in rental models and in the existing distribution channel. So we consider both our brand partners as well as the rental companies we work with as multipliers. No, they're educating customers about these new possibilities. They are bringing the units into the hands of the people. They're explaining them and they make sure that they're used very efficiently because, you know, using assets efficiently or renting them out efficiently is the core business model of a rental company. Okay. So you have this dual go to market where you, we've done what, what you've done today, which is selling the assets directly to the end customer. So the construction company or the catering company and this other model you're building, which is more about going through an intermediary, which is a, a rental company selling to them and they will be responsible for the financing and the rental to each end customer. Yeah, and of course we also have end customers, like for example, the coffee dealer you were talking about earlier, they would be using the battery every single day. So they would be a perfect customer for us. But ideally we would not be just working with one of these, but we would be working with a, you know, with a franchise, with a, you know, a coffee chain, and they would implement this at scale. So for us, it's really important to, if you want to scale fast, you have to also find partners on the distribution side that are going to scale faster than you knocking on every single door. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I can see how in construction, for instance, you can work with those, you know, big construction conglomerates, and I'm sure you have the same in, to some extent in catering. But I imagine some of these industries have a long tail of small business owners, like the, the coffee shop we're talking about. Is that something you're deprioritizing today in your go-to markets? Or do you have a different way of addressing them? Because as you say, these are individual or, you know, maybe they have a few shops, but they're fairly small scale. So it's difficult to reach out, you know, have the right distribution channel to go to every single door and make that, that Instagram sale. So what we're, our answer to that problem is you're absolutely right. There is a long tail and because the cost of acquiring these customers might be too high for us, you know, walking door to door and uh, educating them, we're doing that with our e-commerce team. So we have an e-commerce uh, strategy in place. So any account that is between one and 10 units is what we aim to directly handle via e-commerce and, you know, target via um, online marketing, building, um, reference cases, doing videos with our customers, and that works quite well. But, you know, whoever built, if you have ever built an e-commerce company, building that traction, you know, building a brand around that, it's not going to be as fast as working with someone, something we do at the same time, but we want to scale faster. And also we, we're doing almost an omni-channel approach today by having all these different distribution channels. We have to handle them and, um, this is not always easy for a company that initially just aimed to make hardware, but um, understanding these distribution channels, knowing, for example, that you need a customer support team for your direct small customers, but then maybe a customer success team for your enterprise grade customers, you know, because they want to introduce that in, or in their organization means that you have to play 
a lot of different distribution channels at the same time. And that can be very capital intensive. So yes, we try to focus, but we also try to bring our devices into the hands of as many people as possible, uh, as quickly as possible. Right. Bringing down the cost of sale and distribution with the, the e-commerce model for this long tail. And shifting gear a bit, say you're a German company, you're operating in Europe and you, you've raised over $30 million recently. And I think part of the goal of that money is to go after international expansion, including in the US specifically. Can you tell us more about the US markets? Of course, there's a difference in voltage, which is probably a more technical challenge for you. Is there the same application and the same structure of the markets as what we've talked about, which was mostly for Europe? Or is there local specificities that you have to include when you're entering this market? Yeah, so first of all, the big single market we're talking about is, of course, the US. And we think of it as very important to be there as, as quickly as possible. And there are several reasons for it. The first reason is that the US market is very battery savvy already. So if we go to construction customers in Germany, we start very early in the customer journey. We have to teach them about, or a lot of them, we have to teach them about what is this device? Why would you need it? Then they go on and, and do an evaluation phase. So really there you have a very long sales cycle. In the US, there are already, especially on the larger scale batteries, mobile batteries, there are quite a number of companies in, in the market already. So a lot of our end customers have already their experiences with batteries. They know what they want, but if they find the right product, you can also build an account very fast. So they will evaluate your product and then they're not going to buy two units or four units, but they might buy several hundred units and do a big rollout immediately. Especially for example, a lot of our Customers are from the film and media space, as a lot of film sets have targets to go green in a very short time. And this may be any of the big streaming productions. They are already looking actively for these solutions. And whenever you come up with something that is better and you can provide it, actually just being able to deliver it in times of supply chain crisis might be an advantage over our competitors. So what we are seeing there is that there are a lot of potential customers waiting for solutions. There are states with the right legislation, you know, to further propel adoption of, of, of batteries. Yeah, that's the first thing. So it's, it's the market, it's the market size, but also the maturity of the market. The second thing is that we realized, um, but we already realized when we were working for Bosch still, is that the US is split a lot more between very professional customers and customers that might be fine with a consumer grade solution. Also, even professional customers in the US, like especially like single person entrepreneurs or like uh, craftsmen, they're going to go for a low cost solution. Now they're not going to look for something made of at a high quality, but they're going to go for a camping power station. They're going to live with its limitations. And when it breaks, they're going to buy a new one every year for Black Friday. So it's really a lot more, we have to find a different positioning for the US market. And that positioning is going with very professional markets like rental companies that rely on the equipment lasting very long, you know, having that German quality lasting a long time so they can get a return on their assets. So the positioning is different in, in that sense. And number three, I think a lot of German companies, especially or European companies even have failed in recognizing that the US market just works differently. Having lived on both sides of the ocean. I know that 
marketing concepts, even how you hire people and retain people, a lot of these things will just work differently in the US, uh, which is why the US is for us not just a distributor. You know, this is not, not going to be like a small distribution beachhead in, in, you know, in the States. But we really want to put a whole organization on the ground, you know, to understand the local customers and ultimately also to adapt the products locally to the local requirements. And um, they're, you know, really being on eye level and, and respecting the local needs. You mentioned earlier 20,000 units for, you know, first production batch. Help me understand, you know, the scale of operation that you have today and how you're anticipating in the coming years to scale up production and sales for, uh, for integrated batteries. So currently, um, we're producing in the 10,000s of units per year with two manufacturing partners in Europe. And so we have a local philosophy. So we try to source 100% in, in the area where we're operating which is today possible for everything but the battery cells, which is, you know, probably known to scale up hardware. You have to think more and more into the future. So, you know, building the first manufacturing line and you realize it took you like one and a half years to really get it online. When do you start building the next one? You know, because that means you want to double capacity. Instagram has been growing like a lot above 100% per year for the last three years. So uh, trying to uh, triple again this year. And if you think of that in terms of manufacturing capacity, that means that you have to anticipate that growth probably two years ahead. You know? So you're always, you always have the choice between waiting for the success to happen or investing aggressively in manufacturing capacity without really getting the feedback before if you're actually going to sell it. So if you wait too long, you know you have customers waiting for a product. And this is unfortunately the situation we had for the last two years because you know we ran through this Corona supply chain crisis. So it was really a weird situation for us, or like we saw that we had the increased demand first through Corona and then since last year through the Ukraine war, where where demand was increasing a lot. But at the same time, we were going through a supply chain crisis where we didn't get electronic components, we didn't get battery cells. And now this is about to rebound and we're kind of getting out of this. But now, how do you invest in manufacturing capacity during a time where you don't have components? So these are a lot of lessons we had to learn. And as the business grows, you have to look further and further in the future. So we estimate if we keep growing at this rate, that in about five years, we will have a battery cell demand that will be too big to just you know fulfill like ad hoc on the open market. So you have to kind of think about, will you need to build your own manufacturing lines for battery cells, you know, co-locate them somewhere, have a joint venture with someone. We want to be more sustainable than other battery companies. So if we want to have special battery cells, you know, we have to go deeper into that value chain. So these are a lot of problems in terms of scaling that you will not find in a typical SaaS company where you can spin up a few more instances on AWS when, you know, whenever you hit the limit. And we are learning this on the go. We never built a company of the scale and we have to get in front of the curve and actually, you know, think about things a long time before they happen. You know, every part we need, every critical component, every, you know, manufacturing partner, we have to make sure that we enable them a lot, long time before things happen. But we are, have to run higher risk there, you know, because if we run into a recession, if for some reason we have a, a downturn on the demand side, we're going to find ourselves with twice the manufacturing capacity and half the demand. Yeah, that's the incredible challenge of the hardware companies, right? That you have to project that curve first, 
with the amount of uncertainty that comes with it on that prospective demand, especially when you open to a new market like the US. And then you need to invest in the capabilities uh, several years ahead of that demand. Look, Sebastian, it's been super interesting to learn more about generators and batteries and Instagrid. The health impacts and climate impacts that you can have through the replacement of the combustion generators is, is really impressive. I think it's unacceptable, you know, in 2023 to have such a, a wasteful way and, you know, dangerous for the health way of producing uh, energy when there are so many commitments. So it's great to see this momentum. It's fascinating also to see how fast you scaled in those few years, in spite of, you know, the incompressible long cycles to do the R&D and the manufacturing. And, you know, I'm sure with the latest fundraising and the international expansion, this will keep uh, scaling faster. So thank you, Sebastian, for your sharing your incredible experience. I wish you a lot of success with Instagrid and I and I hope that my favorite coffee shop will, will buy an Instagrid product very soon to be a cleaner and more silent. Thanks, Florian. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on our next episode very soon.